Hello, I'm Vicki Lawson. And I'm Sarah Elwood. We're the co-directors of the Relational Poverty Network, which is a collaboration among over 500 scholar activists and educators working on questions of impoverishment in the broadest sense. The network convenes conversations amongst people working in very different places around the globe in order to trouble taken-for-granted ideas about who is poor and why. And this podcast, titled New Poverty Politics for Changing Times, brings you a series of conversations between poverty scholars, activists, and educators. They think about how to keep questions of poverty and inequality front and center at a time when poverty is not part of the national conversation nearly enough. A foundational premise of the work is that poverty is always produced in relation to privilege and produced through multiple intersecting injustices. It's our hope that these conversations prompt you to think hard about questions of impoverishment and to collaborate with people who are working hard on these issues. Thanks for listening. and uh, I am at the phone with Roda and Bill. I am not attempting to pronounce your surnames, so maybe you want to pronounce your surnames. Hi, I'm Rhoda Rosen. And I'm Billy Guinness. And together we're co-founders and co-directors of an organization called, or we should say an artist collaborative called Redline Service, which is a train line in Chicago where many people find themselves sleeping overnight for want of other places. So, my name is Michele Lancione. I am uh, essentially an urban ethnographer. I do most of my research in relation to homelessness and uh, in relation also to evictions. And recently I have been working around evictions affecting Roma people in Bucharest, in Romania. So probably we can start with the first question and I, I can ask you, Rhoda and Bill, to tell me something about um, what are priority research topics uh, on impoverishment in this moment, accordingly to you and your experience. Well, it's a, a, a conversation we've been having over several years, I think. Well, Rhoda and I might each describe it differently. I think for us, research, we understand research to be a mode of action in the world, a way of relating to people, a way of working with people. And we also understand the work that we do to be a research practice first and foremost. Um, but, it's, but it's a research that is, is, is founded on direct interaction with a situation that we're trying to learn something about, as opposed to pure observation. Or as, a, as opposed to coming in with knowledge, we really see ourselves as in an unfinished, incomplete, um, ongoing uh, process of learning. Um, and that for us is really important because every event or interaction we have or community we engage with and build, and participate in co-building, um, we learn more and more. So our research is really active and um, 
always in process. And for us, that's how art is. So it's something we can bring, we feel that the not-for-profit spaces or academics, pure academic spaces can't really um, bring because we're navigating through spaces all the time. Hmm. This is it's very beautiful what you're saying. It's, it's actually, although I'm not an artist, I wouldn't describe myself as such, uh, it's actually very close to the kind of understanding that I have of academic research and engagement and I, I would say at large it's, 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 it's my definition of being an intellectual so you, you do things um, because you are part of those things and you change in the process of doing them and in the process of doing research with vulnerable communities in a sense you are not trying to or at least I'm not trying to describe them or theorize about them but also always trying to to, to do something that is empowering for both so I think it's very close to what you are saying and I do agree that academic spaces, conventional academic spaces are not really, um, are, not, are not perfect uh, and they don't, they don't really allow for that kind of encounter. So I think that creative methodologies and uh, community-based activities are, are better in that regard. They allow for, for, more, for, for a better encounter to take place with people, yeah. Really refreshing that you understand us as well as you do, and that you share some of our values and approaches. Uh, because while I think there are people who are sympathetic and supportive of our way of working, and the people that know our project well are very enthusiastic, sometimes we feel like we're all alone in this. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, in in prioritizing direct interaction with other human beings. Sometimes people look askance at us and our approaches as being somewhat uh, unconventional. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're doing it as an art project, the frame is around something that's happening in real life, right? The frame is really around an experience. And that has been um, a challenge to communicate to particularly not-for-profit direct service organizations who are at the coal face, right? They're right there giving the person the shelter when they need it or giving them the meal when they need it. But on the other hand, they almost entrench, uh, entrench um, a power hierarchy rather than coming to the person on the level of equality and the desire to be open and to change yourself, as you said, which is critical to us. So, And also they come, I think, with this understanding that there's that, that the thing they're helping, homelessness, is more of a trait than a, experience, a momentary current experience. And so we really try to break open everyone's possibilities, ours and the people experiencing homelessness. Um, we, we try to help ourselves and others to reimagine our personal possibilities. And so in that sense, it's really a kind of recentering voices of poverty.
I think I'm going to quote what you just said. Um, yeah, recentering the voices of poverty. It's it's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, and actually, I mean, what you said, both of you, it reminds me of the parallels that there are between, let's take your example, no, um, non-for-profit organizations and, and their way of dealing with uh, homeless people or other uh, vulnerable communities and what the university does um, does to us because in a sense they are both these are both institutions so they have you know clear uh, mandates and as you said they are hierarchical and they don't allow you know for a for a true encounter for for, for, for yeah for a true encounter with with uh, their constituencies some, somehow and I think that yes heart and uh, experimentation with uh, creative writing or filmmaking uh, can allow to disrupt some of these spaces and can allow to create new new new, new spaces in with in, in between no uh, and this is what I, I try to do and I sense that it's the same thing that you try to do uh, and it's always a challenge as you said because then you have your colleagues uh, your academic colleagues or maybe uh, also within the artist community looking at you saying uh, looking at you as a, as a Foreigner, no, as a, as a foreign element within 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 their space. So there is a double challenge. There is the challenge of having to deal with an institution that is not designed to to give you that space, and then also to deal with colleagues that do not recognize that what you are trying to do is still part of uh, is still part of the intellectual labor that that you that, that we are supposed to do as yeah as artists, intellectual and academics. Yeah. I, I love what you said, and I think that the flip side of that liability, right, the liability of being a part of this system, which we're trying to change, is that when we do go into a community or have an interaction with a population of people, our approach is so different than the institutions they've been working with, precisely, precisely because we are a foreign agent in this, in this uh, otherwise understood order of things. We come along and we try to remove hierarchy as a first step before we've even walked into the room. And, and so, you know, and I, I'm, I'm fresh from a conversation with a friend of ours that we've met through this work from a few years ago. When I met you in Rhoda, it was the first time since I came home that anyone didn't treat me like a second-class citizen. Hmm. I, I walked in and I felt like an equal, and right away I said, oh, well, this is different. These people are different. And that was what kept me coming back and wanting to have the experience with you. So I want to just say that I love what both of you are saying. And thank you so much, Mikhail, for bringing back the institution because you were speaking about it as a space not designed for. Mm. What I've also realized is that we have to bring to campus because we also all teach, right? So and we teach this this kind of engagement socially engaged art practice to students and work with them on, on on our projects and so and with communities and so we also have to remember that what's happening in the outside world isn't distinct from what's happening on campus so we have sat in class and a student has said i was homeless for this many months or years or whatever and we've been to presentations in museums where a student came to us crying and saying thank you so much for speaking about this my family in the suburbs this was 
um, slept in the car for two years. So remembering to bring to to know that our campus. There are people in the food pantries and in shelters who we deal with every day in, on our campuses and to make them also spaces where we can have those conversations too. Um, and then, you know, to Billy's point, and so I, I love that, you know, that you brought that back to, it's not just a hierarchy that excludes a kind of, it is, but not only. Um, these experiences are within our campuses too. And when we forget that and assume a kind of privilege for all that can be very difficult um hmm. so there since you're yeah um i'm also just thinking of the experience just thinking just going off of what rhoda just said of, you know we had an event yesterday hey one of the participants in our program is a phd candidate who's getting a you know his doctorate in social work and he's been He'd been participating in our program as a way to study it and inform his research. And in yesterday's event, he was just devastated at the end of it um, in a good way. He was so moved. He was so challenged. He was so opened up by the experience. And, you know, he was really surprised by that. It really caught him off guard. And, of course, for us, it's been like, Welcome to the party, man. We're, we're, we've been waiting for you to show up and realize what this work is actually about and how deep, how deep it goes. And the, and the context of, of his revelation was a museum of African-American history in Chicago. Hmm. <laughs> you know? And he's African-American. And, so, and, and we talked a little bit about how uncomfortable the space is, necessarily uncomfortable, when we're having the most important conversations, the conversations that get at past trauma, whether that be on a personal level or a societal level or a global level, those things we'd rather not talk about. If we don't, if we don't create a safe space for that awkwardness, then we can't look at those problems with any kind of honesty and we can't effectively work to change the situation. And so for him to come you know, at an advanced moment in his research and just begin to learn. This is, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. I think, I think actually what, what we are saying, what you, are, what you just said, Bill, it's, 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 it's a possible answer also to the, to the second question that they posed us, which is um, who should poverty researchers be collaborating with and, and also how, I mean, essentially what, what what we are, what we are saying, and it's very beautiful that we have this in common, although we don't know each other, is that, is that to create the possibility of collaboration, um, both the researcher and 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 and, and the community or, or the people we are dealing with needs to go outside of their comfort zone. So they need to, they really need, they really need to do what you just said, Bill. Just just like moving away from from the comfort of uh, what we know and from the comfort of uh, of our established categories and, and, and try to have a conversation from that discomfort. So in a sense that discomfort becomes the first step in order to be able to, to have the encounter that we were kind of, uh, kind of evoking before. And I insist on this notion of the encounter mostly because I am an ethnographer and I think that 
before the graphy part of ethnography, which is the representation, and that representation can be done, you know, in academic form, but also in creative, uh, different ways, and artistic form. Before that graphy, the ethno part is the fundamental, which is which is exactly the encounter, getting to know the other, and that encounter is possible only uh, through that initial discomfort. Uh, also, also the discomfort of if you want a conversation uh, through Skype, uh, uh, through through different uh, uh, hours, uh, uh, time zones, and so on and so forth. It's it's it's. I I don't know you. I don't know your faces. But there is an initial discomfort. But still, still, it's 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 productive. It allows us allow us to become closer. And uh, yeah. So so I'm really enjoying this. Um, yeah. That's great. Uh, we feel the same way. I love that. Uh, yeah, the importance of the encounter and the importance, the crucial nature of the discomfort as a necessary first part of the process. Mm. And maybe the end, I mean, I don't know, end point, but maybe the next step is, of course, the reciprocity. So when I think of old-fashioned ethnography and right, mm -hmm. the, and and what this person this researcher actually brought to us was, oh, I can't participate, I'm here to observe. Yeah. But in actual fact, <laughs> took the, that's why it took him so long. Because as soon as he reached that discomfort and that openness that had that, you know, the rug pulled out from under him, then the moment of an authentic relationship with people, with others, or a reciprocal rather than hierarchical relationship with others was possible. I think uh, that everything we are saying points to the next question that um, um, they are suggesting us to tackle, which is what are priority action we should be uh, taking to resist exclusionary trends. So uh, we live different contexts, and maybe you want to maybe you want to say something about how a possible answer to this this question in relation to your context. I mean, the U.S. and Chicago in particular. Uh, it's such a it's such a rich question, and. Of course, I immediately think about, when I think about exclusionary trends, I think about equal and opposite trends moving in the other direction, um, right? And, and, and I'm answering really only for myself to say that I think insisting on, and I'll, I'll use Rhoda's language because I think she says this, radical inclusivity in our approach, right? It's a, it's a very direct and honest rebuttal of exclusionary trends that we're seeing to to put in inclusivity, a genuine inclusivity, <laughs> at the at the front of the conversation. And I think to constantly challenge ourselves when we think we're being inclusive, to to, to know that we're not, <laughs> to know that we can always open that door wider, expand that conversation further. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And for you, Rhoda, it's, 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 it's the same, I guess, or...? Well, it's, you know, Billy said that so beautifully and smoothly mm. that it really was just about, as if it was just about opening a door, that it can be challenging. Mm. 
you know, we encounter a lot of mental illness on the streets because to back up to, to your point about Chicago, Chicago has, you know, is, is sitting in, is a bankrupt city sitting in the middle of a bankrupt state. <laughs> and so, uh, not that this excuses closing mental institutions rather than ending the corruption, but um, they have closed most of the state facilities and those people have been delivered to the streets. Our prison system, which Billy can speak more to, our Cook County Jail is the largest mental health facility wow. in the world. Wow. And, and in fact, the three largest mental health facilities in the United States are all city jails wow. in, in New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago. Right. And so we see the impact of those of not just gentrification, not just the redlining um, that took place to ensure that black families in the 60s and 70s wouldn't be able to buy homes and keep them. Um, the, the forced gentrification as the city moves south and west into what were historically African-American areas or in the recent history were African-American areas, watching people having to leave those, um, automation, you know, all of the contemporary things we see globally are being played out in a very heightened way in Chicago. Hmm. And so we plop down <laughs> in the middle of that and say, you know what, there are solutions, whether that's housing first or paying people a living wage. And we're just going to enact those as our art practice. <laughs> it's that simple. And if two of us can do it, how much more if, as Billy likes to say, plumbers start caring or nurses start caring or art historians start caring you know, together, how much it helps us. Wow, this is very, very informative um, for me that I can leave that context. There is, there is there is one of the examples that you that you just made, Roda, that which is housing first. That I I've been working a little bit on that in Italy and Wales, and there is one thing that always stuck me about housing first is that mo most it doesn't really requires um, a huge economic investment. It doesn't really require a huge um, managerial investment or what really requires the, the fundamental requirement and I don't know if you agree with this is a cultural change in the way you look at homelessness no? so instead of looking at people from, uh, from the point of view of they are not ready for it you just look at them like of course they are ready for it no? um, but this is such a big change and, uh, and I think that I think that one of the way just to uh, relink my answer to, 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 to the question, one of the, the ways to resist exclusionary trends uh, from my point of view, from the work I do as an academic is, is, is just to try to, to, to push these kind of radical agendas and policies in a, in, in a very provocative way. Uh, I mean, in a sense, I, I tell my students, just stop doing literature reviews. I mean, of course you need the literature review, but start to think about uh, what you're studying in, in, in a critical way. And also in a radical way. And when I say radical, I mean something that can be 
made, made active in the world, uh, that is actionable by people in a sense. So, uh, in, in a sense, I mean, a, a very stupid way of answering this question is that exclusionary trends, in a sense, can be resisted only constructing non-exclusionary trends. And you construct non-exclusionary trends just in, as being an academic, just concerning yourself uh, with um, constructing ways of making um, theory and policy radical, actionable by people, uh, uh, you, uh, something that can be used by communities, and uh, and uh, yeah, uh, and, and everything you said. I mean, the scale is different, the context is different, the history is different, but many of the issues that both of you highlighted are, are very much present in the UK as well. Um, and I think we can tackle them, we can try to find solutions to them, only if we start to think critically at the jobs that we do, just don't take things for granted. And as an academics, I think we have, we have a big challenge, because again, because the institutions tell you essentially nowadays to take things for granted, <laughs> because you have to comply with the metrics, um, and you have to write papers and be ranked. and. Uh, and, and that is okay. Now I'm just I'm just starting to, you know, babbling about everything. But yeah, like in, like yeah. It's very important. It's very important what you're saying, and I think that you know where where you have the, those people who march in the street and and yell about keeping out foreigners, you have the very easy target, right? That okay, this is the opposition. These, these are the people whose minds we have to change. Yeah, but. But in fact, that the grossness of their approach makes them easy to identify. The harder to identify exclusionary trend is the one that is unspoken and that, and that lurks inside the most progressive institution, the most progressive work environment. Hmm. You'll find it. You'll find that little thread of, yes, we're lifting the masses, but only to the bottoms of our feet and no further because we like our position here hmm. and, and so whether that's the academy or whether that's you know a, a not-for-profit uh, system that that lives on charity from the for-profit system where wherever you look you can find that which is not to say people aren't well-intentioned on the contrary they're incredibly well-intentioned so the same admonition that you give your students about actionable approaches in the world that are, that are radical in, in their actionability. That same shift in perspective that you're uh, working with your students to create in the context wherein you work is applicable at a dinner table with your spouse and your extended family. Yeah. It's applicable in, in the classroom, on the street, everywhere we go. And it, and it can be confrontational without being aggressive or assaultive. It can, it can simply plant a new perspective in the conversation that requires a response, hmm. even if it's not a, a spoken response at that moment, something someone can take away with and chew on for a while and say, hmm, I've, I've got something to think about here. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I kind of just want to name, I think I want to name the thing that we're talking about when we say that we want to be inclusionary in a radical and authentic way. And I think it's about um, this issue that you raised, Michael, about um, people coming, assumed to be coming with deficits rather than coming with assets, right? Mm -hmm. And you assume that people come 
with assets, then number one, they're welcome. But what you're really talking about is that you recognize, because I think that's a really important word, to recognize another's dignity. That is inherent. And that, if we were to put our finger, I'm making this, I'm speaking for you too, Billy, but if we were to put our finger on what we believe about every person who we engage with, encounter, is that we're recognizing the dignity and we're in turn being recognizing our own dignity. Yeah, I, I, I. I would just, and I would take out the word dignity and replace it with the word humanity. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's the approach. Right, because dignity is filled with a historical yeah, it's baggage, got, right? It's got some baggage we right. don't carry. Right. Uh, yeah. But yes, we're recognizing the yeah. humanity of a person, and in turn, our own humanity, which is often lost in the rule of every day right yeah now I agree with what you said replacing with humanity and in a sense I think in the end it requires just uh, training ourselves to it in a sense no because I mean what we are talking about what we are talking about is also about empathy no um, to be humane with somebody else I think it means to understand where they come from and that understanding requires an empathy that can be uh, fostered, can be trained. Um, so in a sense being attentive to what other people have to say and uh, how they behave can be learned. Um, it's not something that we are born with necessarily. I think can be born and to a certain extent can be taught. But I think maybe one of the priority for critical poverty study, just to connect to the last question, is probably find a way to let people feel more than understand that uh, empathy is necessary and it's um, yeah, it's a prerequisite probably of action. Well, I, I love you to that. I don't know if you agree with me. I, I, I think I think we. If I didn't agree that empathy could be learned. It would be very hard to do this work <laughs> because I'm trying to learn it myself yeah. through this work, um, and I and I and I, yeah, that's right. Um, I believe we can learn it. Sorry, I, I got lost because you mentioned the last question and I had a response that was specific to that. But I guess I'm just really hung up on this idea that we have to be able to learn empathy. Yeah. We have to be able to learn how to listen to one another, how to be with one another. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear your response to the last question then, Bill. Can, can, you, can you say that last question again? I don't have it in front. Oh, sorry, sorry. It's um, what are priority keywords for critical poverty studies in this moment? Uh, I, think I think shared humanity might be a good place to start as a keyword. Mm. Sort of recognizing and participating in shared humanity. Uh, 
for you, Rada is the same, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a difficult question. Um, I find myself a bit lost when it comes to keywords. I kind of don't know how to deal with them. So probably I would say, yeah, I would say something that we said before, like empathy, uh, radical action, and maybe I would add to this slow, becoming a little bit slower, um, like to, being, to, be, to be slow. It's, it's another thing that um, I throw, I throw into the into the pot because I'd like to learn that. Just try to slow down, and in a sense, by slowing down, allowing for that empathy to emerge, and maybe, and maybe, for instance, now nowadays, for me to enter into that discomfort, the discomfort zone we were talking at the beginning, to enter into that zone, I need to slow down because I am going so fast, doing so many things like you, I guess. So, in a sense, slowing down may be another keyword, just trying to, yeah, take time, take time to listen. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's right on. And something, I guess, that occurred to me earlier when I read through the questions was something that we picked up from one of our friends in our, one of our programs. He said he didn't like to think of himself as homeless. He preferred to use the term in transition. Mm-hmm. And that really struck a chord with us, and we started using it as the preferred as the preferred term for anyone experiencing homelessness. And people in our circle caught on and started using that term. They referred to people in housing transition, people in transition. And maybe a year later, I was with this man again, and I said, but by the way, that word that you use, transition, is that common among people who are experiencing homelessness, or is that just your word? He said, well, that's just my word. That's just the word that I like. I said, well, <laughs> we've been spreading it around. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I love that word to, to be something that we recognize going in to any situation, that it is a situation in transition, yeah. whether that's a personal situation or a societal one. It's always in transition. And so we approach, as you say, slowly, deliberately, with our eyes wide open, with our ears open, hopefully. But the understanding that what we're looking at is changing right before our very eyes through contact with us <laughs> and countless other factors. Mm -hmm. So I like this. We've got slow pace, shared humanity, empathy, assets rather than deficits. Um, I love the active research. Um, Flux, a sense of flux. A sense of yeah. flux, authentic yeah. encounters, yeah. authentic relationships, maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah. We also talk about, I guess, sometimes, in fact, we've named a program something around disrupting the narrative. Mm. It's, it's another way of saying that um, we're, we're determined to break what people think of as poverty and hear what people, the expertise. Maybe another thing is changing the expertise. Yeah. People come with so much of that mm. that we can't hear if we lead with our assumptions. Mm. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with the change in the expertise, starting with the academic expertise and then of course going into the practitioning world, 
yeah, changing the expertise, it's, it's fundamental. It's actually, again, related to homelessness. It's the key to change the way in which practitioners or mm, the media, uh, the everyday men on the street deal with homelessness. Yeah. I, I, I really enjoyed uh, having this conversation. <laughs> I, just, uh, I just hope that um, uh, sooner or later we will, uh, we will meet. Uh, I will, uh, I will, when, I, when I come next to the US, I will let you know, and I hope that you'll do the same if you happen to, to come to, in the UK. Great, yeah. We will certainly be in touch about that. It would be wonderful to meet you in person. Yeah, the same. Thank you.